Hey guys, this is Cameron. And it's Stacy. And Giselle. And you're listening to Put Your Oxygen Mask On First. Hey! Yay. Yes! <laughs> the one only Gil Carrillo, ladies and gentlemen. First, hey. and, first and foremost, we want to thank you for doing our podcast. We are forever grateful, but we also want to thank you for your service. You are a hero in our eyes, Gil, and we are super ecstatic to have you ecstatic to have you on and tell your story. But first, let me introduce you to my co-host Cameron and Stacy. Hi, Hi Gil. Hi there, Cameron, Stacy. I'm just glad that I got hooked up. I'm just an old man, an old Latino here trying to stay up with modern day electricity. And man, I was getting scared. I said, where's the link? And then it came on text and we finally got it straightened out. So I'm just happy to be here. And it's my honor and pleasure to be able to accommodate your podcast. We're so happy that you just, you came on and joined us on our special podcast. We appreciate you for being on here. So, hey guys, thanks for joining us. Welcome back. Today we have a very special guest. Mr. Gil Carrillo. Gil, for those who aren't familiar with you, can you tell everyone who you are and what you've accomplished? Well, you know, it, it started out, I'm a, uh, an old man that retired from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Uh, it'll be 12 years next week. And uh, a matter of fact, a week from, uh, a week from Tuesday will be uh, 12 years that I've been retired. I spent 38 years with the Sheriff's Department, 26 of which I worked uh, murders and officer-involved shootings. Uh, prior to me coming on the Sheriff's Department, I spent three years in the Army. Uh, as a matter of fact, we go way back. At age 17, my, a cop took me home and told my parents, sign for him to get off the streets or he'll end up dead or in prison. And they signed. I went, ended up in Vietnam. And when I came back after combat, uh, I matured and realized that uh, I wanted to do something more in life. I had a new appreciation on life. I wanted to go to college because at that time uh, I was of the impression that only rich white people went to college, but I wanted to go. And I knew I was mature because when I sent for my high school trans transcripts, I was embarrassed. I obviously thought that D stood for damn good and F was fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> we got through college uh i became a cop i did what i had to do uh and the one the third goal i had in life which is not a good one uh i wanted to hook up with my ex-girlfriend who when i was in vietnam had written me a dear john letter saying sorry you're over there i'm over here and this ain't working so best wishes and she broke up with me i mean broke my heart it was sad. I'm in a foreign country fighting the war. And now I get this. It wasn't good. So when I came back, I wanted to see if I could get her hooked back up, eaten out of the palm of my hand so I could break it off with her and get revenge. Wanted to see her suffer like I suffered. <laughs> so I got, out of the, nothing. <laughs> yeah, I got out of the service uh, in June of 1970. And, uh, by September, I had her eaten out of the palm of my hand. And the day after Christmas, 1970, booyah, we got married. <laughs> and so I've been married. Uh, we just celebrated last year during the pandemic, our 50th wedding anniversary. And Wow, congratulations. Wow, yes. Congratulations. So there's That's my life in a nutshell. Just a regular old Latino raised 
you know, uh, raised in Pico, and here I am today. Uh, since then, since my career, and then they did this recent documentary on the Night Stalker case, which just happened to be uh, my case. Myself and my partner were the lead investigators on the case. And as a result of that uh, one case, Mr. Tiller Russell, who is a uh, very, very important, very nice, kind guy, director, producer, he does all this stuff. He decided he wanted to do a documentary. He did it. It dropped in January of this year. And it and was since- amazing. It was yes. amazing. You were amazing in it. And you're not just a regular old Latino guy. You are amazing. You are a hero. So thank oh, you. Thank you. But <laughs> since that thing dropped, my, my whole, it, it's like my whole life has changed. I really didn't do uh, Facebook. Wasn't on Instagram. Uh, didn't do, I, if I did Facebook, it was a minimal amount of friends that I had on there because I was afraid. I, I wouldn't even let friends of my, my children I wouldn't let them be my friends because I didn't know who they knew. And it was just strange. When this documentary dropped, uh, I told my wife, you know, I don't want people to think I'm arrogant or I'm an asshole. I I just, because that's not me. I kind of like to think that I'm a nice guy and I'm not mean and I'm not your typical uh, whatever anybody thinks about a cop. Uh, (laughs) I'm just a regular guy. And, uh, so I started accepting friends. I said, unless there's a reason why I shouldn't, I'm going to let them be friends. Mm-hmm. And then they, somebody told me, you got to get on Instagram. That's the, that's the social medium now. Come up with the times. So in a short few months, I started on Instagram. And now I'm almost at 5,000 followers. And this is yes. all. This I, is found all- you, I found you, Gil, um, through Momo. Momo tagged you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For the comedy show that you guys did in Brea, you yes. and Momo, and um, I ended up following you on Instagram, and you followed me back, and I was so ecstatic. Like I, I announced it to the whole world. I was like, "Oh my god, the Gil Carrillo, you just followed me back!" And like I was just ecstatic. And Momo was like, "Oh, that's my friend," and I'm like, "I'm like, oh my god, I'm such a fan." And um, next thing I know, I'm talking to you on on AJ's live. And yeah. I'm like saying, come on, a- um, Gil, let's go grab a drink. <laughs> and next thing I know, <laughs> next thing There's I know, we're here. People. There's some good people. Momo, uh, I met through George because as a result of this documentary, not George only do I have it. almost 5,000 followers, George is really big on this crime stuff. And I didn't know it. And I had a friend of mine, uh, he was playing a band, the only guitar player in the band that I played in called me up and he said, Hey, if they reached out to you, I said, who? He said, well, I just heard on the radio, George Lopez said, anybody know Gil Carrillo? Have him give me a call. And here's a number. So I called and I left a message. Next thing I know, George is calling me back. And the very first time I spoke with him, we must've been on the phone 35, 45 minutes. And it was just really calm, really cool talking to him. And then he says, uh, how about coming down and joining us? But I had no idea he even did a podcast because I don't listen to that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> so he said, yeah, just get some guys together. Come on down. Gave me, they gave me a time and an address. I went down there and it was his podcast. And he wanted me to sit in on a podcast. So I did. And, and you're great. Your commentary is great. I'm such a fan. I watch the oh. podcast religiously. 
and I enjoy your guys's chemistry and what the guests that you guys have on as well. So I'm well, a big fan of George Lopez too. So I'm so jealous, Gil, that you got that. You get to sit next to him. Oh, Damn. I, I told uh, the the very first show I did with him was with the comedian Bobby Lee, who uh, uh-huh. is a great funny guy. He was on there, and he asked me. He says, "So, Gil, were you nervous about coming on here and meeting George in person?" And I and I told him, "No, not at all." You know, because George is nothing more than another human. Mm-hmm. I said, what I was, I was excited about meeting him because I had paid good money. I had seen George in person at least five times. Me too. <laughs> and so I said, I'm a big fan of his. And I was excited about meeting him, but I wasn't nervous. Well, that's what started our first show. That's what we did. And it just started a friendship. And that friendship has grown, and he invited me back to do it again. And then I asked asked him at one time, I said, could I do one more show with you? At least one more. I just wanted because there was a guy, I don't know if you saw the one where we put my dad's picture, the painting. Yes. Uh, Okay, well, that one. I said, I need to get this painting on your show. I want to show the world what this guy is doing and what he has done. Yes, it was really yeah, it was really, really nice. It was sweet what the guy did this. Uh, Daniel Parks was a gentleman's name. And when I told George, could can I come back at least one more time, George? Uh, I want to show this. And he said, shit, come back one more time. You're my co-host. And <laughs> so we That's just went awesome. from there. That is so awesome, Gil. I've um, done about 20 shows with him now, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm really happy. I'm so happy that you're happy and that you're doing this and you, you are doing it with George Lopez. But um, Gil, we want to ask you a few questions. Let's sure. like from, from from all the way back. We want to know what a young Gil Carrillo, where and how you grew up and what a young Gil Carrillo was like. Well, a young Gil Carrillo was always, I'd like to say I was always a nice kid. Uh, I started out, you know, I can remember walking to school and wrapping uh, silverware for lunches. That way I could get a free lunch. Huh. I had six sisters. I was the only boy in the family, uh, uh-huh. which means we obviously were rich, uh, rich in making babies, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah. uh, my mom and dad both worked. And I grew up like that as I grew, as I grew up a little older. I remember uh, I just told my son the other day, there was... My dad never denied me anything I ever asked for, but I never asked for anything that I didn't need mm-hmm. with the exception of one thing. I asked him if he would rent me a saxophone so I could start playing sax. And he oh. did. He nice. rented sax. And by the time I got done with the junior high school, that rental turned into, he bought it for me. And I grew up uh, playing the sax. I used to hang around on the block with the, with the rats, you know, we were out there and I could stand out on the corner with the best of them and say, well, what the local me porta poco in the sky is blue, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and that's why the cops, uh, that's why I got to know the local cops and mm-hmm. they kept me out of trouble. I'd been in fights, uh, but I never got arrested and I never used dope. I, I didn't use dope. The big thing back then was reds, something the reds and bennies were big. And that was about it. Reds and Bennies. That's what are Reds and Bennies? Reds, uh, Bennies were uh, amphetamines and bar, 
and red were uh, barbiturates. One was an upper and one was a downer. Right. And so that's what uh, was out on the block. I never used anything like that. And at age 17, I went into the Army. And George asked me, because we had uh, the rapper uh, Be Real. Yes, I saw that episode. And they, it was the show. that show was all about weed. Mm-hmm. And George says, and he just looked at me and said, come on, Gil. I, you're, you're not a cop anymore. And I know you went to Vietnam. And I know weed was easy to get over there, I've been told. And so I explained to him, yes, it was. You could buy it like buying a pack of cigarettes. That's what they used to do. The Vietnamese people would get a package of cools. They'd roll out the tobacco, fill it back in with weed, and then reseal the packs and sell them to you. It was cheap. Uh-huh. I said, but I was flying. And George, I couldn't afford to be loaded, and I couldn't afford to have anybody in my crew loaded. So right. that was out of the question. Never used dope over there. And then when I came back, I was only back uh, a year when I ended up becoming a cop. And when I became a cop, weed was a felony. So right. I never used any any drugs, uh, didn't use anything like that. And then just once it became legal, it really doesn't bother me who uses it. My kids, anybody, I don't care. I'm not a prude. It's just the stigma <laughs> for so many years of me not. And it was against the law and I had problems. So I just still to this day, I, I don't use me yeah. neither. You know, that's what we have in common. <laughs> but yeah. I want to know, why did you choose to go to the military? A young Chicano, like, did they force you? Was there a draft? Like, what made There was you- a draft going on, but you had to be 18 years to join the draft, you know, uh-huh. before you, you joined the draft. No, it was a cop. Uh, you know, I wasn't doing good in school, and I wasn't going to graduate. And my English teacher, and English was required then, told me, if you write a term paper... I'll give you a D and let you graduate. Oh, wow. And so I asked this cop that used to come around the block all the time, hey, you said you'd try and help us get off the streets and do good. I need somebody to help me write a paper. I want to write it on cops because of you. And so he helped me write the paper. And I got my D. And so then I was going to be able to graduate. But he also is the cop that told my parents, sign for him to get off the streets because if not he's going to end up dead or he's going to end up in prison so my parents Mm -hmm. took his advice and they signed because you had to have a parent signature if you're only 17. okay so i went in and as it turns out all the guys off of my block right there in the barrio those that went into the service ended up coming out having productive lives and those that didn't are either dead or in prison today. Wow. Right. So it, was, it was a good move. So that's what got me out of the barrio. And that's what got me on the right path for later on in life. What, what experience, no, what did you learn from the military? And how has your experiences and your career path changed you? I, I learned that, uh, number one, in life, if you panic, you die or somebody gets hurt. That's true. So it just carries you through. Uh, in Vietnam, it was life or death. And if you panicked, somebody lost their life. And so mm-hmm. I learned how to remain calm during anything. Just remain calm. Think it through and you'll survive and others around you will survive. That helped me in life. To mm-hmm. calm, calm things down. Uh, help me out as a cop. You know, don't panic. 
I mean, I've been shot at by bad guys. I've been shot at by cops, but not panicking helped me get through. Right. So that that's what learned. I learned through perseverance, and uh, you can hang in there. You can accomplish anything you want. Uh, the first time I took the test to become a cop, I failed. Wow. I thought I'd come right out of the army and just go take that test, and here I am, world, and I didn't pass it. And what started, motivated you to work for the LAPD, Gil? What motivated well, you? Okay, well, now this is the first time, Giselle, I'm going to have to correct you. Okay. I work for LASD, <laughs> Sheriff's Department, not LAPD, the police department. Oh. I wore the tan and green. The LAPD wore the dark blue uniforms. I call them the blue meanies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> LASD, okay. I, I worked LASD. I applied for both departments, and the realities are I wanted to be an LAPD officer because I liked their uniforms better. That's how naive I was. <laughs> and I applied for both, and I just said, whoever will accept me first. Once I passed the uh, test, and when I took it the second time, I took them both around the same time. I passed them both, and Sheriff's Department called me first, so I went. And... I'm so glad that I did. I thought it was a better choice uh, still today. So I'm very happy. Did you feel were you, you, were you? Go ahead. Go ahead. Were you always interested in the field you were in or did you have a different career path? No, it was always to be uh, a cop. Okay. I wanted to give back what that cop gave to me. Oh, and if sweet. there's any way that I could ever help reach kids, I do. That's I so still, sweet. Just a couple of months ago, I was reading... Uh, on a Zoom class, I was reading uh, a book to kindergartners. So it doesn't matter what kids. I've lectured at colleges around the United States. I've taught kids. I go speak for kids. Uh, anything I can give back, I do. That's so sweet. That's exactly what we try to do, too. Um, Gil, did you feel you were respected as a Latino and taken seriously back then? And your job? Yes, there was on the job uh, within the department. You, you go on and you look at your cohorts. You don't look at Latinos or blacks or whites or Asians. Uh, we're all brothers and sisters. You don't look at color because mm -hmm. I need that guy to save my life and they need me. So you don't look at color. After being on for a long, long time and work, you, you don't notice it. it it's not up front, but one begins to question, uh, I got promoted to lieutenant in, uh, let's see, 2004. Mm -hmm. and so I, I went back as a lieutenant in Homicide Bureau, and I was the first Latino above the rank of sergeant to ever be promoted in the Homicide Bureau. And so one, oh. it makes you think... Are you going to tell me that for the last 80 years, there hasn't been another Latino smart enough to, to get up there or why? Right. You know? And so I had so many years. I remember speaking with the number two in command, the undersheriff. And when I was getting promoted and he says, Gil, I, I see here that you put in a request to go back to East L.A. patrol because that's where new lieutenants go. They go to patrol or they go to the jail. And I said, yes, sir. And he says, well, let's be serious, Gil. He says, you haven't, had, you haven't put on a uniform in 20 years. 
what good are you going to do to me out there in patrol? They need you back in homicide. That's your expertise. That's where you spent so much time. And so we need you more back there. So it was unheard of. And I got to go back. But yet with all of that, I was the first Hispanic ever to be above the rank of lieutenant, above the rank of sergeant. So you, there had to be a disparity. Well, and more and more we, Latinos are, are, are coming on now. Now they've got a captain back there that's a, that's a, a Latino. And But the working class, it's all about, uh, you know, just there is no race. And, and now you have uh, a sheriff that's a Latino. And uh, so it's, it's a much better place in time right now. What did you learn about people as a detective? People are all the same. People are human. There's nothing more. You know, you treat people the way you'd like to be treated mm -hmm. if you were on their, their side. And, and probably the two most important things you have to learn as a detective, uh, and that is you have to have the ability to listen. What you say is not important. What they say is whether it be a witness or a suspect, you have to have the ability to listen. And when someone's talking to you, you don't write down their answers and you don't start thinking about it. if he's saying one thing, you're saying, aha, I've got him in a lie. Now I'm, you're thinking about what you're going to respond to. You can't do that. You have to listen wholeheartedly. And if you stop to think about how many times when you're, when you're really mad at someone and they're telling you why they're running late, and, and they, they tell you that the reason they're running late is because they got involved in an automobile accident and ran over a little kid. Oh my God. And then when you're done, you're saying, yeah, but that's no excuse for running late because you really didn't hear what they said. You're thinking more about what you're going to tell them, how angry you are at lashing out. So you have to have the ability to listen. And number two, you have to have the ability to understand that everybody does something for a reason. Right. So, if you understand that reason, it makes it a lot easier to talk to people. And what typically causes that reason, Gil? What typically causes the bad behavior, criminal behavior, or, you know, serial killer behavior? What do you think causes that? That's not, the, that's not an easy question to answer, and that's not one that I'm qualified to answer because everyone is different. Mm -hmm. You have to understand not how they got there, what it's what they're actually doing. If you have, let us say, the simplest thing to do is if you have a pedophile, somebody who's molesting kids, you have to have the understanding that the reason he's doing that is because that's sexual gratification for him. <laughs> Not what drove him to get there, just the understanding that that's what it is. And in his eyes, it's not wrong. So <laughs> you understand why he's doing it. You don't condone it. There's two different big difference between understanding and condoning to answer how they got to that question then you need a psychology you need a doctor psychology mm -hmm. I'm and just a psychiatrist <laughs> so go you so let's be get in. oh go ahead go let's ahead. get into richard ramirez uh -huh. how did you get involved in the case and how did he get the name of the night stalker that was that those are simple questions i got involved because Everything works in Homicide Bureau, at least in our Homicide Bureau, on a rotation basis. And when your turn is uh, time to be on call, you get the next case that comes in. And as it turns out, I got the next case, which happened to be the first case of the modern series. 
And then as you work that case, as you go along and others start coming in, well, if you find that it's related, well, then they just start giving you all the cases that are related and you take them all. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how, that's how you get it. How he got the name that didn't come from us. That came from the news media. Okay. Um, they started calling him uh, the night stalker and he liked the name, the night stalker. And so it stuck with him. They'd call up and they'd say, what are you calling him? I said, you got a name for him? And I'd say, yes, we do. And they said, what is it? And we said, we're still calling him a suspect. We don't know who he is. <laughs> so that was it. Would you say that was like, the... go for it. Go ahead. No, go, no, go for ahead. it. Again. <laughs> Would no, you say this is, talk... this, this is like the most serious case you guys have been involved in? Well, it's the highest profile case mm -hmm. that I've been involved in. There have been other cases that are just as important. And, then, and when I say high profile, it's one that got the most media. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's, you know it's high profile because here we are. This happened in 1985. And here we are 35 years later and it's still garnering attention. Right. So yeah. Very, very. It was very, very complicated. It was a very intense case. Uh, my family moved out for a while. Uh, it was just a, a heavy, heavy case. How many hours did you work per day, Gil, for these high-profile cases? I know this has to be like a 24-7. Well, you know, my, my captain at that time was quoted in the Los Angeles Times as saying we were working 16, 18 hours a day, seven days a week. I didn't have a day off from uh, June up until the end of September. Right. Uh, how did you keep focused and sane? I mean, especially in this case with the Richard Ramirez case, how did you, how were you focused and sane and, and, you know, kept your, kept your cool per se? Cause I know that, you know, you guys have to, to survive. It's, it's a matter of you, you, we got as much rest as we possibly could. Uh, we did things that were different. I had a police radio next to my bed every night. Uh, cell phones were just coming into play. We didn't have cell phones. They gave me a briefcase with a cell phone in it that was like about a brick. Mm -hmm. uh, big old thing. And uh, you relied on your partner. My partner became the closest friend, brother, anything you ever have because you rely on each other. When one of them's down, the other one picks him up and vice versa. And I had the pleasure and the good fortune of working with Frank Salerno, who had worked on the Hillside Strangler, which was another high-profile serial murder case before uh, this one came in. So we carried each other, and uh, that's how we got by. Everything else became secondary. Uh, family, kids, everything became secondary because we were totally focused on trying to identify and capture the bad guy. Working as a detective on this case, did you fear Richard Ramirez, the night stalker, as civilians did? Like, did you fear him coming into your home? I was, I was not afraid of Richard. And uh, I, I wasn't too concerned. I, I didn't have time uh, to be afraid. Remember what I said? If you panic, you fear, you, right. you lose. So, and my family moved out. And they were out of the house for almost a month before he was arrested. So, in numbers, I felt relatively uh comfortable mm -hmm. and i didn't have time to think of anything else because all my focus was on where's he at what's he doing what do i have to do tomorrow what kind of evidence we'd write notes down on napkins on on anything we could mm 
Because mm. it was a total focus on him, not on us at all. Uh, Gil, when you finally got to encounter Richard Ramirez, did you feel that like satanic evil energy that he's known to carry off? No, not at all. He's human, just like you, just like me, just like uh, anybody, just human. Hmm. So, um, Gil, what was like one of your first experiences with Richard Ramirez? Uh, I looked at him and I knew that was him. I hadn't seen him. When I walked in after his arrest, I walked into the uh, interview room and I knew who he was immediately and he knew who I was. Uh, he looked and said, Carrillo Salerno. You know, he knew who we were. He had been studying us just like we had been studying him because wow. we were in the news. And so <laughs> he knew exactly who we were. And so that's the way, uh, that's the way it was. And then him and I, uh, I carried most of the conversation uh, because we had something in common. We were both Latinos, both from the streets. And so I understood the culture. I understood his vernacular, the words he was using. And so we got along great. He called me Gil and I called him Rich. Oh, my oh, God. Wow. <laughs> my partner, Mr. Salerno. And that's because he was well-read and he knew all about he, he, his words. Gil, I've got an eagle that will fill this room. I can tell you everything about serial killers from the time the Romans fed the Christians to the lions to modern-day serial killers. Oh, my God. So he was, no, he was no idiot. He was no dummy. He knew what he was doing. He did not want to be uh, interviewed by psychiatrists because he wanted people to know that he did it because he was his own boss. You know, it was his mind that did it, not because he was crazy. Oh. So you don't think he was triggered to kill because of stuff that happened in his childhood? I have no idea. That's once again, that's somebody else's. That's a medical question, not mine. Mm -hmm. He asked me, Gil, why do you think I did what I did? Why do you think I am the way I am? And my response to him was, Rich, if I could answer that, I'd be a doctor making a lot more money than I am as a cop today. <laughs> I really, I, personally, I don't give a shit what made you the way you are. My job was to identify you apprehend you and now it's to get a prosecution complete did he smell like how he um how the media said that he smelled like his victim said that he smelled like the stench did like you go. smell that like bacteria in his mouth and things like that well like the you, you just have to figure okay it was sensational because and and you said it in in, in the world of unknown or naivety you know, were you scared because he was satanic? Did that bother you? No, no, not at all, because Satanism is nothing more than another religion, another form of religion. Nobody's afraid of you if you think Christian or a Catholic or Buddhism, but all of a sudden, if he's Satanism, oh, he's so evil. Well, he's nothing more than human. His smell. People, up until this uh, Instagram, I never knew that so many people thought he smelled like a goat. Yeah. <laughs> I, I worked the case. I spent days and hours with him. I never smelled anything. You know, I, I never detected any kind of a smell. When you're around somebody that hasn't brushed their teeth in a long time, 
or even just one day, they wake up with a morning breath mm. and you get by them and you get close to them, it's offensive. You know, you can smell it. Well, Richard had, his teeth were uh, decayed. He had some rotten teeth in there. So he, he, he had a, you get close to him, he had an odor in his breath. And people, surviving victims said he had a pungent odor to him. But what people failed to realize, he was wearing the same clothes when he'd go out and he'd, we called him his kill kit. The clothes he would put on when he went out and uh, killed somebody. Those clothes have blood on them. Mm. Oh, blood. Wow. Now, those clothes, just imagine if you will, Giselle, if you got your dirty laundry, nothing and no blood on just dirty laundry, and you put it in, in a plastic bag, bless you, and you put it in that plastic bag and put it in the closet, and you left it there for a week, and then you go take it out, your clothes are going to smell. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, he did the same thing. He had the clothes that he wore during is uh, lurking around. And then when he was done, he would take off the dirty clothes, put them in a bag and put them in a locker at the Greyhound bus depot. So his clothes stunk. You know, they're going to be smelly. So mm -hmm. there's reasons why he would be smelly. Did he smell like a goat? No. Did he smell offensive? No. And I spent days with him, time with him. I don't know where he got it. I didn't know where people were getting that from. <laughs> Um, so, Gail, does, was there anything that he told you that that made you think, uh, no. You guys, do you have a question? Sorry, let me get my thoughts together. Did you ever walk, like, I feel like I'd be traumatized for life after dealing with such a horrifying case. Like, did you ever walk in on anything that was just, like, obscene, like, blew your mind? And, like, how did you held up after? No. No, because... Uh, the simple analogy that I use, and this is hopefully not offensive to anybody. However, a gynecologist examines females day in and day out, and he looks at their private parts. And when he's down there examining a female, he's not excited or breathing heavy. Mm -hmm. It's scientific to him. That's his job as a doctor. Oh. Yes. But when he goes home and he takes his girlfriend out, and they have a few drinks, and now they're going to go back and make love. Mm -hmm. Well, all of a sudden, he's breathing heavy and excited, just like every other uh, male mm -hmm. in the same predicament. Mm -hmm. So if I tell you on a major street right in front of your house, a big 10-ton Mack truck, you know, a big diesel comes by and runs over some man in the intersection and the guy is clutching $10,000 in his hand because he ran out on the streets just running out of the bank. He just robbed the bank. And he gets decapitated and mangled by that truck. You'll run out of your house and you'll see the blood, the guts, and the gore. I will walk up and the first thing I see will be $10,000 in the guy's hand. Mm -hmm. Because the rest of it is not blood, guts, and gore. It's scientific to me. Every time I go in and look at a dead body, it's it's science and it's telling me something. Um. So I can see if the guy, you know, which wounds came in, where was the guy alive when he got stabbed or dead, and uh, was perimortem, which means during during death, was it from 
in front, behind. It tells me a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't look at it ghastly. I don't, oh my God, that's ugly. No, it's all from, I start preparing from the time that I would get the call that I'm going to a case, start preparing mentally because they've given me a small briefing on what to expect when I get down there. So I just start preparing mentally for what I'm going to be, what I'm going to do. And it's just like a professional football player who's just an everyday guy, no difference. And then all of a sudden, come Sunday morning, he starts focusing. Then when he gets on that field, everything else is forgotten. It's game time, time to get ready. Well, that's the way it was working, doing what I did. You prepare, you train, you get ready. Then they call you and you start mentally preparing for what you get there. You get there and it's game time. Now you step on in and do what you do. So it's like the mindset you go into the situation with. Exactly. Yeah. That makes sense. You don't want to be scared every time. (laughs) Every time. You guys go ahead. Did you, what did did you learn? What did you learn anything um, about Richard Ramirez that like gave you like a deeper insight to him or? No, I didn't. I didn't learn anything from him. Any insight? I had taken uh, two semesters of advanced criminal investigation pertaining to sex crimes when I was working on my bachelor's degree, and that prepared me. You know, they they taught me stuff that, uh, as he used to say, I can hear him saying it today. Any reasonable sex crimes investigator would know it. Any reasonable and prudent sex crime investigator would be able to observe this. And I was able to observe things long before I ever met Richard. And that was uh, from the very first one that I got. He made a deliberate noise. He wanted, you know, just imagine if you could sneak up, you're going to kill somebody. Mm -hmm. And Giselle, if somebody was sneaking up behind you, they could walk up behind you and kill you and make it easy. But Richard didn't do that. Richard wanted to be seen before he committed his act. So he made a deliberate noise so that people could turn around and see what he's doing and who he is. And he did that because there's a sexual deviancy that says you get gratification out of watching people frightened. Oh, my God. And so you go see all these scary movies, but you know they're going to be scary. And the reason they keep showing them to you is because they know people will pay to go see them. Well, there are some people, instead of seeing a movie, want to, want to see the real thing. Mm-hmm. And they do that. And that's what Richard was doing. So I, there were things that I recognized before. He did nothing once I got to know him. And once I started spending time and talking to him, I learned nothing from him that I didn't already have the knowledge of. Go ahead, guys. Go ahead, Stace. Um, I remember hearing that you got an outstanding evaluation at a young age of 29, and you were also the youngest detective um, on the case. And with growing up where you grew up and then going to the Army, what do you think kept you so humble with make, with attaining all your accomplishments? Uh, my family, my, my mother and father. You know, I, I've never forgotten, uh, and I tell young young cops, uh, probably the highlight of my career was I was given the opportunity to be the keynote speaker at a graduation class 
for young cadets graduating from Sheriff's Academy. And I got to do this just before I retired. And I told them that they had to learn that they are absolutely nothing. We are nothing unless we have a good support system, whether it be a, a boyfriend, girlfriend, brother, father, friend, mother, anything. And you can never forget where you came from. And when you're young, you're humble. And only as you get older, do you forget that humility. And now you get, uh, you know, you, you get braggadocious and very bravo and you're good. And you know everything there is to know. And, you know, you're the, you're the best. Well, you can't. Because as you go through life, I don't care how old you are, you can always learn. And you just have to remember, you started out as a new, new kid, as a rookie. And so you have to uh, maintain that. And I still maintain it today because I didn't get here alone. I'm surrounded by heroes and surrounded by friends and family. Right, which is important to have. And Gil, what advice in general would you give specifically to Latino men? Just working with like Richard Ramirez, like like him, and then like having the opposite a direction of life like you you know, Chicanos, what, what do you, what would you give advice? What advice would you give Latino men specifically? Well, I, let, let me say this. I don't, I wouldn't give Latino men specifically any advice because there's no difference between a Latino male and a, and a white male or a black male. Right. Everybody's equal. We're all the same. And, and there is, there is no difference. What I would tell any male Anybody, any child, anybody growing up, uh, you know, there's a there's a great movie that I've seen at least a dozen times, and I still get uh, lagrimoso. All my tears start rolling out. Stand mm -hmm. and deliver, oh, and that's a movie. Stand and deliver. Stand and deliver. That's with uh, Edward James almost plays yeah. lead, and he's a after a true life hero, Jaime Escalante. Uh huh. Who, was the teacher that gave him. And in that movie, he, he tells some of his people, con ganas, with yes. desire, you can accomplish anything you want in life. Yes. Nobody owes, nobody owes you anything because right. you were raised a poor Latino. Nobody owes you anything because you were born a Latino and not born white. Mm -hmm. Right. You're you, right. You have to earn everything on your own. And with desire, you can accomplish that. Con ganas. Yeah, con ganas. Nobody has to give you anything. You have to reach out. You have to work hard. You have to put in the time. And it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, I'm living probably the, the best part of my life. And I'm 71 years old. And it didn't come, you know, when I was younger. I'm the only one. I have three children, my wife. And I'm the only one that's ever worked. You know, aside from once my kids became adults, but I mean, when they were young, my wife never worked. She was a stay-at-home mom. And mm -hmm. so I worked. I worked hard. I worked hard. I went to college full-time, and I worked full-time. Wow. Trying to keep my family together. And I it's funny now, I laugh at it. But uh, my kids, back in the days when they were young, there was something called Jordash jeans. Jordash jeans. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> and so I used to tell my kids, you're going to get lard ass jeans because daddy can't afford them Jordache jeans. 
you know, so that was it. And since I was the only one working when we wanted anything, if we wanted to do something to the house or wanted a new car, anything, I had to start a second or, you know, refinance my house. My house, I only paid $24,500 for. Oh my wow. Wow. And I only owe about two more years and it'll be paid for. I owe wow. less. <laughs> yes. So, and people laugh at me, you know, how can you live in the same house for so long and you still owe on it? Well, that's because I borrowed against it. And now I'm in a position where I don't have to borrow. Now I just got to finish paying it off. And within two more years, the house will be free and clear and things Final. are a lot better in my life. But it took me all these years in life before I got what I have today. So great advice. I, I don't care what what race you are, you know, it doesn't come overnight unless you hit the lotto. Right. <laughs> but I, I, I'm assuming that you're talking to just young average males or females and not somebody that's been, you know, comes from a rich family that's silver spoon fed and has mm -hmm. everything they want anyway. But all you have to do is work hard and hang in there. Such good advice. good advice. Very good advice. Good advice for us as well. We gotta. It doesn't go come over. I mean, it doesn't come overnight, guys. So we have to <laughs> keep on going. Right. You guys are doing it, and and God bless you. And I wish you nothing but the best of luck. And, and I'm happy to be a part of whatever you're doing and whatever your endeavors are. Thank well, you. Well, we thank you so much for coming on and giving us your insight and letting us. And on the case and what happened, like we really appreciate you for being a special guest on this episode. You have no idea how much we are so glad that you came on. So and grateful. Gave us this lovely interview. You have no idea how wonderful I feel that there are people out there that want to take time out of their lives to listen to me and to take oh, time to interview me. So it's uh, you are. Girl. <laughs> you are amazing yeah, everything you said was so freaking beautiful and so well spoken it's like oh my god i think people got a lot of good insight from yeah, you. yeah i was gonna say that you have really good insight on life mm -hmm. well when you're as old as i am you get a few chances at it you know <laughs> <laughs>